so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC Podcast. Thanks for joining us this week as we listen to Charmaine Yost. Rebecca Walker, after having an abortion as a teenager, went on to become pregnant later in life, and she almost lost that baby. So being a writer, she went on to write a book about that experience called Baby Love, Choosing Motherhood After a Lifetime of Ambivalence. And here's what she said. I kept asking what we do if I lost the baby before I even had her. How is it possible to feel so attached so soon? In early 2016, the ERLC partnered with Focus on the Family to host Evangelicals for Life, a pro-life gathering held in conjunction with the March for Life. Charmaine Yost, a longtime champion for the rights of the pre-born, gave an address titled, Dignity and Destiny, Women and Abortion in the 21st Century. We hope you are encouraged to stand up for the preborn and offer hope to hurting women as you listen to this talk. I'm excited to be with you to take a stand with Evangelicals for Life. Um, when Russ and Jim told me that they were going to do this conference as an evangelical who is leading a, a pro-life organization in this movement, I was really, really excited to see us working as um, another faith tradition to come alongside the March for Life and to say, we're going to have more of a participation in the pro-life movement. And that was exciting for me as a Wheaton College graduate and um, a lifelong evangelical. Well, I'd like to talk today, I I took the liberty actually of changing my topic just a little bit to react to some things that have happened in the news in just the last couple weeks related to abortion and specifically related to women. So I've retitled my talk this morning, Dignity and Destiny, Women and Abortion in the 21st Century. So to get started thinking about the interaction between the abortion issue and women, I'd like to start by asking how many of you are fans of the Mad Max movies? Do we have anybody here? No one who wants to admit it. (laughs) Okay. Well, this summer I went to see the latest installment of George Miller's Mad Max movies, and it's called Fury Road. If you're familiar with it at all, it's, it's the Mad Max series is a dystopian series of movies, and Fury Road is a very brash and brutal film, and it's painted as a very hostile dystopian landscape, and it's full of sound and fury. So as the movie progresses, we watch scenes of callous destruction and death, and there's an anti-hero named Immortan Joe. And he's running down, chasing down Fury Road after a trio of his wives who are trying to escape him. 
Then near the end, there's this moment of transcendence. One of Joe's wives is accurately called splendid. She's gorgeous and she's pregnant. And then there's this horrible moment where suddenly out of the clear blue and very shockingly, she's killed. And Joe is standing there. He's been chasing her all this time through the movie and he's shocked at her death. He's standing at the foot of her lifeless body. And then in anger, he orders his henchmen to cut her open and bring out the baby. There's a moment because it's a boy and he too is dead. Standing nearby... Joe's older son reacts in rage at the little boy's death and he cries out, I had a baby brother and he was perfect, perfect in every way. In this scene, we're surrounded by a brutal and bleak post-apocalyptic landscape and there's a moment of mourning of a little boy. The prospect of new life had been a wisp of hope. The grief at his death speaks to us that even among monsters, even among monsters, the little boy was a sign of enduring humanity. Well, I'm so glad that you had a chance this morning to hear from my friend David Delighton and to know a little bit more about the amazing work that he's done over the last several years. There's a similar moment near the end of one of his undercover videos in one of the Planned Parenthood labs. And David's hidden camera takes us inside a pathology lab following an abortion. And just like Fury Road, we're confronted by this really jarringly sterile dystopian landscape. And there's a medical technician and and he's picking through the remains of a tiny infant looking for saleable parts. First, they recognize the heart, then the kidneys. Finally, there's a distinctive part, and the doctor murmurs, it's another boy. It's another boy. Why does it matter whether it's a boy or a girl, and why does that instinctively speak to each and every one of us? And it's because babies matter. Babies matter. Each individual life speaks to us of love and community and the infinite possibilities that new life brings to the world. Well, at Americans United for Life, I'm honored to work with a remarkable team of attorneys. We're the legal arm of the pro-life movement, and we have a formal mission statement, which was beautifully expressed by our former board member, the late Father Richard John Newhouse. It says, we are working towards a nation where everyone, every person, is welcomed in life and protected in law. But today, I'd like to start with something that is a far less sophisticated rendition of this statement to help us think through this question of why babies matter. And it comes from a poster that I have hanging in my office, and it isn't fancy, but it's a decidedly cheerful blue elephant that I know you know named Horton. And Horton tells us that a person's a person no matter how small. They tell us that Dr. Seuss wasn't necessarily pro-life himself, but when, we, when in literature and art we speak of truth, they almost inevitably have to stumble on these things that really matter. A person's a person, no matter how small. Throughout history, whenever those in power have wanted to assert their dominance and pursue a culture of death, they begin by defining their victims as outside the community of caring. So think with me for a minute throughout history of what this has looked like, how dictators and tyrants define people as the other and being beyond human compassion. 
So a person becomes subhuman, or they're an inferior race, or they're a blob of tissue, morally equivalent to a tonsil. So today, as we gather here in working to defend the defenseless to establish justice, we're standing in a historic tradition of heroes like William Wilberforce, Abraham Lincoln, Harriet Tubman, on all the nameless thousands who died fighting slavery. We're also standing in the historic tradition of Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks and the civil rights movement. We're fighting today the great human rights struggle of our day. We're standing today and we're marching tomorrow for human rights for human beings. And here's the good news that I want to be sure you hear from me today. We are succeeding. People ask me all the time as the leader of a pro-life group, Tomorrow we celebrate the 43rd anniversary of Roe. Aren't I discouraged? Should we just pack up and go home? Why do we keep coming back to Washington year after year to commemorate the sorrow of Roe v. Wade? Well, don't take my word for it that we're succeeding. I frequently think that our opponents actually have a much better grasp on where we are as a movement than we do ourselves. And so I'd like you to take a minute to see how our opponents see it. They are scared. This graph that's in front of you comes from the pro-abortion Guttmacher Institute. And it was accompanied when they released it with screaming headlines of how Roe v. Wade was about to be overturned and how the pro-life movement was out to absolutely destroy women. And what this tells us is that more abortion restrictions across this country have been enacted since the pro-life elections of 2010 than in the entire previous decade. We have seen an absolute tidal wave of pro-life laws sweep across our country. And I'm frankly really proud of this progress because it comes from a deliberate strategy that the pro-life movement enacted to concentrate on state legislatures. As a movement, we suffered a crushing and very demoralizing setback in 1983 when the constitutional amendment to protect life failed in the United States Congress. But you know what? When you're fighting for life, you can't give up. You have to press in and move further up and further in. So we were undeterred, and Americans United for Life convened our own pro-life Congress in Chicago the very next year, and as a movement together, we strategized and were persistent in the face of disappointment. Coming out of that Congress, which packed the uh, Palmer House in Chicago, we came out with a plan. The plan was to focus on state houses and test the limits of Roe. And the story of the next several decades is one of trench warfare and gaining ground under the radar. This graph shows you just what Americans United for Life was involved in just this last year in one year. It's a snapshot of one year of victory. Now, as we move into this next year, we've seen hundreds of pro-life laws passed across the country. And we're steadily gaining ground and taking our country back. Even better is part of that strategy was to chip away at the edges of Roe, to challenge the Supreme Court in their extremism of saying that you could have an abortion for any reason through all nine months of pregnancy, to challenge the Supreme Court on that and to see, if, to see how far they would dig in. Well, for the first time in almost a decade, the Supreme Court has agreed to review a pro-life law and oral arguments and whole women's health v. coal is coming up on March 2nd. 
This is a case that's centered around the passage of HB2, which was an omnibus pro-life bill that passed in Texas a couple years ago. How many of you guys remember when... (laughs) All right, Texas. (laughs) Way to go, guys. You've been doing remarkable work in Texas. What a great state. So how many of you remember Wendy Davis and her pink tennis shoes? Yeah. Um, Well, she got the headlines for trying to filibuster this bill, but at the end of the day, the bill passed in 2013 and was signed into law anyway. And the abortion lobby has been fighting it tooth and nail ever since, attacking the bill. And of course they have more good news about how we're succeeding. In 2012, before the passage of this bill, there were 41 abortion clinics in Texas. Today, there's somewhere between seven and nine. This is good news. It's good news. It's not where we ultimately want to be, but it's good news. The reason that clinics are closing is because the law now requires an abortionist to have admitting privileges at a hospital nearby and for their clinics to comply with very basic common sense health and safety standards. And they would rather close their doors than comply with bare minimum standards that protect women's health. So the amazing irony is that the abortion restrictions they claim violates the 14th Amendment. Now, all of you know the 14th Amendment by heart, (laughs) but humor me, and I'm just going to read a little bit of it to remind myself of what the 14th Amendment says. The relevant parts are that it says that no state shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person the equal protection of the laws. Don't you just find this really remarkable? (laughs) That they are asserting that these words that say that you cannot deprive any person of life, of life, that you cannot deny any person of life, that that is a pro-abortion passage in our Constitution. Well, the heart of what I want to talk to you about today is to work on looking at how the law is influencing our culture and how our culture is also simultaneously influencing our law. Because I believe that there is so much power in understanding what the other side is talking about and what their objectives are. And I really believe that the pro-life movement needs to do a better job of engaging with this dialogue. So just a couple weeks ago, on January 4th, the Center for Reproductive Rights and the National Women's Law Center made headlines across the country when they submitted their brief challenging HB2 to the Supreme Court. In all of their briefs, they claim that abortion is essential to women's equality and their equal dignity. Ladies, this is us that they're talking about. They're saying that we need abortion to have equal dignity with men. This is what they believe the 14th Amendment guarantees them. They call it reproductive autonomy. Women's equal dignity, they claim, and this is a quote, demands that women have the right to decide whether to continue a pregnancy. They go so far in their briefs to claim that, quote, they would not have been able to achieve the personal or professional successes they have achieved were it not for their ability to obtain safe and legal abortions. This brief, with this quote in it, the Center for Reproductive Rights went out and got over 100 female attorneys to sign on to it. 
Over a hundred women signed on to this statement. And the very first line of their brief starts with this statement from one of the women. To the world, I am an attorney who had an abortion. And to myself, I am an attorney because I had an abortion. This is an offensive and deeply, deeply impoverished view of women. These abortion advocates are the true misogynists in our society and they are thoroughly discounting true female power and ability. Arguing that a woman's destiny is shaped negatively by motherhood and that her equal citizenship is dependent on abortion is fundamentally anti-woman. I have with me today two of my three daughters and one of my sons. And this offends me, this idea that somehow who they are in this world is in any way connected to abortion. Nevertheless, this is what our opponents believe. And this is what they are telling our children in our culture every single day. Their argument has become so deeply rooted in our culture and in our law in a way that is so little recognized by our movement. But we need to. We need to engage with this. If you listen to how they talk about abortion, it's not about the baby for them. It's not about the baby. When we're talking about the baby, and we always should, that's why I started with the baby. But when our conversation ends there, we're not engaging with where the people we want to convince are living. Let's look for a few examples of what I mean by this, about how they're talking. Going back on the campaign trail in 2008, President Obama argued that abortion is one of the most fundamental rights that we possess. And then he concluded by saying, it's not just an issue of choice, but equality and opportunity for all women. This is an appalling idea, but it's essential to understand that part of the framework of this idea is a legal concept that was outlined by none other than Justice Anthony Kennedy, who, as you all know, is our swing vote on the Supreme Court. In the 1992 Casey decision, which many of us were hoping was our opportunity to overturn Roe, Justice, and of course the justices did not, Justice Kennedy wrote that we must maintain Roe because women have come to rely on it for our place in society. Here's what he wrote. The ability of women to participate equally in the economic and social life of the nation has been facilitated by their ability to control their reproductive lives. And while the effect of reliance on Roe cannot be exactly measured, neither can the certain cost of overruling Roe. This is what we call the reliance interest, this belief that women rely on abortion for our place in society. Well, I've wrestled with this philosophy over the years in the pro-life movement, and I've seen it firsthand. When I was pregnant with our first daughter, nine months out to here, the very last engagement that I accepted before having Hannah, our oldest daughter, was an invitation to debate Gloria Steinem about the future of feminism on a panel. It was irresistible, even nine months pregnant. (laughs) But although it was interesting to meet her, the interaction that has stayed with me all these years later, two decades later, was a debate that I, or a conversation that I had with one young woman named Rebecca Walker, who's the daughter of Alice Walker, who wrote The Color Purple. 
And Rebecca is frequently cited as one of the up-and-coming young new feminists. And at the time, she had just graduated from Yale University. So very highly educated, very well-versed in feminist philosophy. But she kind of thought that I was a unicorn. Like, who is this strange person who's pro-life? So she kept asking me more and more questions about what I believed and why. And at one point, I finally just blurted out to her, Rebecca, I'm pro-life because I'm pro-woman. And she looked aghast and she pulled back and she said, I've never heard of such a thing. I've never heard of such a thing. And I said, but I believe that abortion harms women. And she said, Charmaine, you can't be pro-life and be pro-woman. You can't be pro-life and be pro-woman. That's the central premise of today's feminism, abortion as a power statement. The problem is a funny thing happened on the way to empowerment, and this is posing a challenge for the culture of death. An unexpected source highlighted the significance of the reality a few years ago. Feminist author Naomi Wolf, who's actually a friend of mine, wrote a controversial essay in the New Republic back in 1995 entitled Our Bodies, Our Souls. And in it, she wrestled with how feminists approached the spiritual dimension of abortion and argued for a renewed sense of moral gravity. And here's what she wrote. She said, we need to contextualize the fight to defend abortion rights within a moral framework that admits that the death of a fetus is a real death. Well, you can imagine how this landed within the feminist community. And uh, there was a tremendous, tremendous outpouring of anger over this article um, and against Naomi's attempt to engage in this conversation. And I would argue that subsequent to that, instead of elevating the conversation, the denial of the humanity of the unborn has, if anything, deepened. And I think David's project is exhibit A in that argument. So, but here's the problem for them. Avoiding reality is an extremely tricky proposition. The reality of death is revealed through a grief a deep, deep grief that cannot be denied as much as they'd like to find ways to deny it. So abortion activists continue to find ways to categorize it and cauterize it and push it to, to the side. Jennifer Baumgartner is another uh, abortion activist who tried to kick off an I Had an Abortion t-shirt campaign. Um, you see lots of them out there on the streets? <laughs> no, not actually. It was not a terribly successful campaign. She moved from there to writing this book from the cover that juxtaposed the pregnant woman with the woman wearing the I Had an Abortion t-shirt because they'd like to embed abortion within a pro-maternity conversation. The problem is, is they do keep coming back to grief. And in this book that they wrote where they tried to square the circle of women's pain after an abortion, they asked a question that they could not answer, and it was this. What do you do... If a patient wants to baptize the remains. It's a question that they had a difficulty grappling with. So they go on in the book to suggest a shift in symbolism. To move from coat hangers to angels wings. And they said that doing this would indicate the thousands of women who have abortions. And yet believe that a fetus has a soul that is watching over them. Justice Kennedy said that the effect of relying on Roe for a place in society cannot be exactly measured. 
And he fears the certain cost of overruling Roe. And by that, he means the cost to women. But my friends, they are ignoring that there is a very, very certain cost to the culture of death. Emma Beck is a name that I'll never forget. She was a young British woman who aborted twin babies under pressure from her boyfriend, which is an all too common story. Months later, she had plunged into a deep depression that she could not rouse herself from. And eventually she hung herself. She left behind a note which read, living is hell for me, I should never have had an abortion. I was frightened, but now it's too late. I died when my babies died. At the inquest, the coroner said it is clear that the termination of pregnancy can have a profound effect on a woman's life. Well, in fact, it was clear with Emma Beck and it's clear with very many women, but this is the bare fact that the abortion advocates do not want to address. But the research is very, very clear. Emma Beck is not an isolated case. In fact, abortion dramatically increases a woman's suicide risk. In fact, 27% of women who abort report experiencing suicidal thoughts. And ladies and gentlemen, hear me very clearly with my next point. Among teenagers, that rate rises to 50%. Parents need to know this. Young women need to know this. And yet every single time, that we introduce parental notification or informed consent provisions across this country, the abortion lobby fights us to the mat. In fact, I believe that abortion should come with a warning label because one in 10 women are affected by an immediate complication from abortion. Think about that in the context of the fact that they are fighting us all the way to the Supreme Court over requiring clinics to have common sense regulations in order to care for women. One in 10 women suffer from immediate complications and one in five face complications that can be life-threatening. Now sometimes people wonder why I make this emphasis about what women experience inside an abortion clinic. After all, many people on our side have actually been convinced by the abortion advocacy argument. It was their choice. It was their choice. It's a surgery that has complications and it has risks and they make that choice. I would argue to you that the abortion advocacy movement has been so successful at driving a wedge between us and women by convincing people of this argument, putting them on the side of defending women and us on the side of defending babies. We need to put those two back together again because, ladies and gentlemen, it is so clear that women do not go into an abortion clinic wanting an abortion. They don't. It's very clear that that's not what's on their mind. They are troubled by some external factors and the abortion industry is there to prey on their pain at the lowest moment of their lives. What an Alice in Wonderland world we live in where the defenders of so-called women's health are the promoters of abortion. Let's call them the abortion harm deniers. In her activism subsequent to our meeting two decades ago, Rebecca Walker wrote an essay for Harper's Magazine calling abortion a surgical operation with a mission. She's committed. She was committed. 
Here was her message to women. She said that, my hope is that after your abortion, you will connect your very special person with the very important political, and you will begin to know your own power. Our strategy, our strategy as we head into the next decade of this fight is to be deeply committed to engaging with this debate about women and power. Abortion for women is not about power. It is a poverty. It is a poverty for women. And yet our public voices are saying otherwise. The feminist icons who are speaking to the next generation tell them that their power is rooted in destruction. Take, for example, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who will be sitting and listening to this latest question about abortion in March. She's now hailed by feminist hipsters as the notorious RBG. Well, I'd argue that she's notorious indeed. Justice Ginsburg dissented from the Supreme Court's decision to uphold the ban on partial birth abortion in Gonzalez v. Carhart. Think about that for a minute. She wrote a legal brief arguing that banning partial birth abortion, which involves killing a baby as it's being born, she wrote a brief arguing that that should be legal. And here was her argument. Here was the notorious RBG's argument of why partial birth abortion should be legal. She said, women cannot enjoy equal citizenship stature without abortion on demand. Ladies and gentlemen, that should be notorious. That my equal citizenship depends on abortion? Well, do we want to be relevant? Do we want to engage the culture where they are rather than where we want them to be? If so, they are talking about women's dignity and women's destiny. If you read their briefs that they've just filed in front of the Supreme Court, that's their refrain. Women's dignity, women's dignity, women's dignity. We can't fulfill our destiny without abortion. That's what we should be talking about too. Well, let me conclude with telling you two last quick stories. Rebecca Walker, after having an abortion as a teenager, went on to become pregnant later in life, and she almost lost that baby, a very wanted baby. So being a writer, she went on to write a book about that experience called Baby Love, Choosing Motherhood After a Lifetime of Ambivalence. And here's what she said. I kept asking what we'd do if I lost the baby before I even had her. How is it possible to feel so attached so soon? By the time the technician called my name, I was sure it was all going to end in tragedy. How is it possible indeed? I had a baby brother and he was perfect in every way. We must keep coming back to what we know to be the truth. Pro-life is pro-woman. The famous rap artist Nicki Minaj had an abortion when she was 15 years old. And the pain of that experience permeates her 2008 single called Autobiography. And she asked the baby to forgive her. I see you in my dreams with me. In an interview in 2015, just this last year, with Rolling Stone, Nikki told the reporter, it was the hardest thing I've ever gone through. It has haunted me my, all, my whole life. The most pernicious lie that the abortion industry tells is the fiction that they are on the side of women and that they stand for feminine power. What is this dignity that they speak of? 
Because in truth, their actual message is one of weakness. They tell young women, you aren't ready. When a woman is at her lowest point of desperation, they say, you can't do it. In her lyrics, Nikki called their refrain for what it is. She called it nonsense. I adhere to the nonsense. Listen to people who told me I wasn't ready for you. But how would they know what I was ready to do? Our mission is to hold out an alternate story, an alternate ending. To encourage and support a vision of hope, of possibilities, of infinite possibilities. To tell women they can face the future because the future is at stake. So a Scottish performance artist named Layla Josephine who wrote a poem. I think she was a she. And in the very last line, she acknowledges, I'm sorry, the very first line, she acknowledges the humanity of her baby, giving her the female pronoun. She could have been born. She could have been born. Her poem is defiant. It's defensive. And she uses a refrain over and over. I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed. But still, Layla Josephine thinks her baby was a she, a girl. Just like the perfect in every way baby boy born on Fury Road. Just like another boy in that sterile laboratory. Layla thinks her baby was a she, a little girl with dignity and destiny. And she could have been born. She could have been born. Thank you for being here today, for standing for life, for working with us to defend and work towards a day when every person is welcomed in life and defended in law. Thank you for tuning in to the ERLC podcast. Visit ERLC.com to view past podcast episodes and find more material on this topic and a variety of others.